I am Sarah Jane Case, and this is Enneagram and Coffee. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I hope your day is treating you well. Today, we're talking with Reverend Nian, founder of Evolving Enneagram. Her organization offers transformational Enneagram-based spiritual counseling, consulting, and community building to individuals, families, and organizations around the world. Welcome to the show. Hello. It's so good to be here, Sarah Jane. I feel a little bit like selfish having you on because this is like... I love talking to you. So this is just my opportunity to have a conversation. Oh, well, the feeling's mutual for sure. I was like, Sarah Jane, I'll, go, I'll talk to you anytime. So. <laughs> Great. Awesome. Um, so as you know, we start with Rosebud and Thorn. What are yours today? Uh, well, um, I guess the rose is something great, right? That, mm-hmm. That's happening. And well, what just happened is I just came back from California where I got to spend quality time with my nieces. Well, I've got a lot of nieces, but these two actually live in New York and are four and five years old, respectively. Mm-hmm. And you know, that COVID and everything is like not being in their lives, like mm-hmm. the sadness before of like, they don't even know who I am. And you know, like <laughs> they didn't, it was so sad when I first like saw them, but we spent like lots of quality time. Um, my sister, uh, their parents were gone for the weekend in Napa. And so I got to really spend time with them. And that was really special. It was as well as time with my own parents. And um, my grandmother passed away uh, earlier this year. So I mm-hmm. did go visit my parents and had special time with them. But you know, obviously it's a, it's a little different when you're there for a funeral and it was just really meaningful for me to spend that quality time with my family. That's like all vaccinated. And so it felt really safe to do so. Um, yeah. So returning from that trip. Yeah. Oh, and that age four and five is so special. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I forgot, I was like, like, I forgot what little kids know or what they get. Yeah. There's no getting by them. <laughs> like the questions, I'm like, oh, okay. I'm like, oh, all right, we're going there. All right. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah super adorable. They're so cute. <laughs> so, so, yeah, super special. And, yeah. So the bud is something I'm looking forward to, right? Um, yeah. I'm going, I, this is the weirdest month. I haven't traveled in forever, you know, like zero during COVID. And I am going to Cabo San Lucas in like a week and a half to teach the Enneagram, to do like a very intimate Enneagram retreat for uh, an organization. So super excited. And, yeah. and this is like the new me, like meaning I even thought about, oh, do I want to spend extra time there and actually enjoy myself? Because I mean, I guess we'll talk about my type today, but like historically, adding on something fun is not part of like what's even on my radar. Like, I don't, you know, like that, Oh, what people, you know, people do a business trip and they think about adding a vacation to that. Like that's never been part of my like life. And so the idea that I will spend some time enjoying myself there is like ridiculous. I mean, it's yeah. I've never thought about it before until now. So the fact that I'm at a stage where I'm like, I would just enjoy it for no particular productive reason, you know? So yeah. that's like thrilling. Yes. Yes. It's uh, freaking. Like there's a sense of, Oh, this is how the world lives. Or, you know, another I could have been doing this the whole time. I know. I had no idea. 
<laughs> so we could have just asked me, like, would you enjoy doing something there? And we're like, it'd be the oddest question. Oh, I didn't think about it. Yeah. You know, well. So that's part of, I think, the liberation of the Enneagram that like, oh, to, to not think about life just as something uh, more burdensome, but like something that's for me. And so it's not just that I'm going, it's that I'm going sort of uh, with like, a desire to enjoy myself as well as like do the work that I'm there for. Mm-hmm. So that that's what's sort of some special about that. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds so exciting. So, and then I need to talk about my thorn. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so my thorn is actually, it appears that it's actually the topic you want to talk about today. <laughs> so, <laughs> thorn in my side. Oh my God. So, okay. So I'm outing myself now because like mm-hmm. my students and congregants and all that don't even know yet. Well, and so I am uh, having a bit of a, a type identity crisis right now. And it's not even resolved, um, but I am in the midst, and I guess we'll get into this, of reevaluating my core Enneagram type. And, and you know, so for those who don't know me, I started studying the Enneagram in 2002 and started mm-hmm. teaching it in 2007. So to even entertain this in a significant way is pretty, I mean, it's like humbling. Mm-hmm. And, um, but it's also like my desire for truth um, is so, strong to be like as authentic to like this journey of self-discovery that like I'm pressing forward and I'm still I'm still sitting with it you know and I've actually I floated the thought uh, toward several people there are people who on the outside tend to think I'm this type anyway the type that I'm moving toward and then the people closest to me are like no you're not <laughs> like I'm like what barriers do you have to me changing my type? Because, you know, but they're like very like, no, they don't see it. And so that's bizarre, huh? Like, mm-hmm. so do I go by the people closest to me? Some say that they're the worst gauges, right? And others are like, actually, yeah, are those the people who know me the best? So mm-hmm. that's interesting. So, yeah. uh, but this is still all in the abstract, but right now that's all I'll say for now. <laughs> so I yeah. get this, but, but yeah, I'm glad to talk about it with you though. I feel like you are such mm-hmm. a, safe space for an important conversation like this. So thank you. I hope so. I feel like, you know, with the Enneagram, I get, I think that what you're saying is honestly really brave. And I know that to the people listening, when your job isn't the Enneagram, it doesn't feel like that big of a deal to say that you're kind of exploring your type, but the times that I have like moments of uncertainty or being unsure about my type, I feel like shame. Like this is what I know. This is the thing I know the most. So how can I be uncertain about me? Let's start from the beginning. Okay. Let's start from the beginning. Like where did your journey start with the Enneagram? And then like, let's come, let's get to where we're at now. Is that, is that all right with you? Absolutely. So here's the story. Um, so I was in the middle of a huge life crisis. Um, and I was, I had just asked my husband for a divorce. This was like 2002. And I had just left my law job at the, in the same weekend. And I was sitting there in my studio apartment in San Francisco with a whole stack of books to like figure out like what's going on with my life. 
and you know, self-help books galore. And uh, the Enneagram was one of those books. I think it was a Riso Hudson book. And I remember looking at that and going online, taking the test and, and then reading the description. So I read the description for type one and I cried. I was like, mm-hmm. oh my God. Because the description I had was the basic idea is you believe you are fundamentally bad. Mm-hmm. Like there's, you know, and I was like, oh my God, this explains everything I've done my entire life up until here. Like it felt like I, the question I used to always ask myself, like I didn't even realize I was asking was what's wrong with you? Like, mm-hmm. I asked, like anytime something would happen, I'd be like, what's wrong with you? I didn't ask myself that. And so when I read the description, I, you know, I cried, and but it was like a hopeful cry in that it was like, oh, well, at least something answers it. At least this explains that, well, maybe this is actually just a story. Like the Enneagram story isn't the truth of you and that you're actually whole. And that was mm-hmm. the beginning of a profound journey of healing, of going, oh, like, like, okay, I'm. I'm oriented toward believing there's something to fix here, right? And Mm -hmm. so, and then I looked at my stack of self-help books and I'm like, this explains, I mean, I'd been trying to fix it all my life, right? Mm -hmm. And so this was giving me like a profoundly different framework, like an aha that was like so um, just thrilling to my soul, you know, I mean, I say yeah. so back then I wasn't even spiritual. So that's another piece of my job. Wow. Yeah, I know. And it's like, I'm so known, you know, as a minister here. And I'm like, I was a devout, if you're familiar with philosophy, first of all, mm-hmm. I was a devout existentialist for most of my life, which is, you know, man made up God, like God doesn't, uh-huh. like we made up the concept. And And so this was like the theme of my life. Like I did not have a spiritual background. My parents were Buddhist, but they didn't really talk about religion or spirituality. And so when I met the Enneagram, I still didn't consider myself spiritual at all, but I understood the Enneagram from a psychological point of view. And I'm like, and it was still helpful to that Mm -hmm. degree. And so, so that was the beginning. And then a few years later, you know, so I was clearly at a bottom in my life of like, Hey, I'm smart. You know, like I was a straight A student in school, you know, like, but I can't seem to figure out how to be happy. Like Mm -hmm. I can't figure out my life, you know? And so a few years into that, it just got worse and worse. And I, I hit bottom and then I found, well, I found a 12 step program. Then I found a course in miracles and a course in miracles was at unity in Marin. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the first church. I think the year was like 2004 ish. Um, uh, the first church I had ever joined in my entire life, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, so that was the beginning of my spiritual journey yeah yeah and so from there we how do we decide like how did you decide like I think I want to work with the Enneagram and I think I want to become a reverend like how did those I'm sure those were separate decisions but kind of how did that happen yeah well so 
it was a guy. Um, I had a boyfriend at the time who wanted to take uh, Helen Palmer's uh, certification class. And it was out in, I, I was in Northern California. So that's where all of that happens, right? Uh, the, basically to be certified in the narrative tradition. So I started that program and, um, and well, I was already interested in this and so was he. So we did that together and I went through three stages of a four stage sort of program, um, the stage where you're doing typing interviews. And it was all like amazing and fascinating. And during those years, I was really beginning to understand um, like family members and relational dynamics. And again, I was still like not quite, you know, applying it spiritually, but more like psychologically, and it was still helping. Mm-hmm. And, um, but along the same lines, again, you know, I found Unity and Marin, and it was strange because, like, I just, there wasn't any philosophy or spirituality up until then that had resonated with both my mind, like that made sense logically, and resonated with my heart. And when, I heard from unity that the belief is that you are actually born in original blessing, not mm-hmm. born in original sin. Like you're born in original blessing. You're born whole. Like that, that was such like, it felt like it resonated with something very like true and deep inside me. As much as I kind of believed I was flawed, there was something in me that at least hoped that this was true. Mm-hmm. And so it spoke to that and it sort of called me out. But the weird thing is like very quickly, I remember being in like class meetings and being super shy. So people who know me and know that I can speak to thousands of people now and do, right? Like, mm-hmm. like without much hesitation, there was a time back then when if I was in a room of 10 people, I would be so nervous to speak. I'd be shaking. Like I was so intensely shy. Mm-hmm. And and so, yeah, yeah. So the, all those things were true back then. And, and yet, so, but when I started in these spiritual classes, like, like I would, I remember I'd have the shaking moment where I'm like, Nin, you need to say something, you know, this it's like, there's something I just knew. And then I'd like bravely raise my hand I'd shakingly raise my hand and just blurt stuff out. You know, mm-hmm. people are like, who are you? And we're like, you know, and then almost immediately they're like, do you like, will you join our board of trustees? And like, <laughs> like, this all went really quickly. And yeah. like, I became a prayer chaplain within like a year, you know, like I joined the board within a year. And I mean, the first church I've ever been in, you know, and it just all. And then one day after being a prayer chaplain on Sunday, I went to my car, I sat down and I thought, you're going to do this for the rest of your life. Mm. Yeah. Like that was the moment of like mm. my call to ministry. That was like, oh, my God, I like because I had always had a heart to help people. But I felt like most ways of helping felt temporary. They weren't regarding the questions of ultimate concern, like the meaning of life and, you know, like your inner peace. And now that I was journeying in a way where the Enneagram understanding sort of married with the spirituality gave me a sense of like increasing wholeness. And I'm like, this is what I want to give to people, like a knowing of their own wholeness. Like, and, and uh, so that was really the beginning of my call to ministry and moving forward. And so, so the Enneagram like always infused my life, like most of my uh, training, I mean, um, most of my training has been 
self-taught, really, you know, taking the online classes, reading books, et cetera, over the years, um, because I needed to focus on then pursuing my ministerial training. And as you know, I'm now a licensed and ordained unity minister, which is really an interspiritual minister. And when I started church ministry, it's so funny because I think people knew this about me from the beginning, but I was still in the, okay, I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm the heir apparent to this flagship church of the unity movement. So I'm going to do this. And, and, and there were people who were like, you're not staying. Like people just sort of knew. And then I remember someone else who later found out that I started evolving Enneagram was like, like, oh, we knew that when we talked to you in seminary, <laughs> like all you could talk about was the Enneagram. <laughs> like, it was just this funny moment of, of the Enneagram being so primary in a way that I didn't even comprehend at the time. But so w- because Unity offers a lot, of, a lot of classes, I started teaching the Enneagram while mm-hmm. in the church ministry. And then that ministry just kept growing. And then I'm watching people. I'm like, Nian, your Enneagram groups, the transformation, the change, the goodness, the blessing that's happening at rates like well, like, like larger and faster than anywhere else in the church. Like mm-hmm. it's right here in the merging of like meditative practices or contemplative practices and the Enneagram. And that reached a point where I somewhat resistantly was like, like, you must do this full time. This is the most important thing you're doing. That's how Evolving Enneagram came to be. It was a, leaving a secure position where I was supposed to inherit the church and going out on my own because it felt like that was the most important work that I was doing, the most effective work that I was doing with people. Yeah. So. And I think there's something so beautiful about the way that you do intertwine this kind of spirituality, consciousness with the work of um, like, yeah, starting as whole and but also like, let's look at our stuff. Let's look at what we're, what, where we can heal and where we can grow without sacrificing, you know, the purity of loving, you know, feeling loved by a higher power, being being felt whole. I, you do that so well. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, what makes it easy for me is the ever growing. Well, number one, you know, there's, um, I have this saying now that was given to me, um, by an acquaintance. I love it. It's not practice what you preach. It's preach what you practice, Mm. you know? And, and so for me, it's like that rigorous, um, looking within that, that is done yet. There's like rigor as to the authenticity of looking within, but there, but that's married with compassion, you know? And as I I often say, and I think I've shared with you before, Sarah Jane, that like, Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'd rather you not know the Enneagram than apply it without compassion. Yes. Yes. That, that piece and that piece not being, uh, not only being a healing salve, but being transformational. Like mm-hmm. I've seen compassion transform people's behaviors and attitudes much more than any sort of willpower has ever done. Mm. You know? So yeah, but that also takes that piece of the Enneagram helps us to be more scrupulously honest with ourselves as well, because it names things that we cannot ignore. Mm. You know? Like yeah. uh, those descriptions of type, right? We're like, oh, 
okay, I do do that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so both together and, mm-hmm. and I just watch people. I, I love, love, love my work because I get to watch people transform right before my eyes, you know, and I get to, so I get to witness people at different stages of their lives. I work with people in their twenties, all the way through their eighties, mm-hmm. people in their eighties who are still growing. Um, and, and becoming more open and expansive and, and um, open to love, like open mm-hmm. to receiving love. You know, I was going to say, oh, like they become more loving. That's a sure thing. But I also don't want to be, it, only be about, okay, let's try to be better people as a result of it. It's more of like, I think opening your capacity to receive life and receive love is a huge part of like that in itself gifts the world, mm-hmm. you know? Um, yeah. So definitely. And that like ability to receive love, I think is oftentimes the, I feel like it mirrors the way that we're able to give love. Like if we're able to receive, then it's easier for us to give and vice versa. Um, Whereas if we're cutting off our ability to receive, then it's often like we're kind of, it's kind of like a one-way valve or something. Like we're cutting off the the entry point and the exit point. Yes. Well, you know, you actually touched on something. Unity refers to it as the law of circulation, but it has to do with a prosperity principle. This idea that like anything we would hoard, like we stop the flow of even being able to receive it. Mm. And there's something about how like opening that channel opens us to both give and receive freely. So if we don't hold on, you know, you Mm. can receive it and let it nurture you, but let it pass through. And then there's a way in which giving can happen in that way. And I actually try to do my ministry best I can in my, you know, very human and broken way, you know, but through in, in going, Oh, well, I try not to do things for the money. Like I try not to look at like, well, I could make that. I I really try to go, where am I called to give? And I'll just trust that the universe is giving me what I need to support my life and my work, but Mm -hmm. the decisions, you know, and you may know that like, so sometimes I might be called to volunteer to teach at a prison. You know, I'm not going to look at that as a, Oh, well, you know, that's not a moneymaker. You know, it's like, if I'm called to it, like I can trust that I can give that without it depleting me, mm-hmm. you know? And so there's some trust around the flow of, of life that is part of what I practice, but also what I want to give to people. Because I think a part of why we struggle in life, you know, when we feel either like when people are controlling or competitive or, uh, or withholding, all of that is a belief in lack and limitation of something, mm-hmm. right? And so if we can open to this idea that there is an abundance that is available to all people equally and that that you can receive as much as you're willing to believe you're worthy to receive. And if you believe in that worthiness, then giving is a na- generosity is natural. It's not mm. like you should, you know, but it's a natural outflow of like co- comprehending sort of that that um that abundant universe idea, right? Mm-hmm. And, and for every type, I'm sure it's different. Like, like you know, do you believe, you know, as a seven, right? It's sort mm-hmm. of like, will the flow of positive things in the future be secure or do I need to plan and secure them? You know, mm-hmm. like, you know, like, will they just continue to happen like that? Or like, am I in charge of it happening? And if, yeah. and if I, and you know, that, that focus of the type seven, for instance, looking forward, it's like, well, 
how can you be present to the good of the moment then, right? If you're mm-hmm. forward. So the, that salve of going, oh, well, if good is unfolding for me, then maybe I can be present to the moment and trust in that and not have my mind constantly jumping to planning that next moment, mm-hmm. you know? So that, that, that belief or that faith in like the, the out, the unconditional outpouring of love from the universe. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I know it's idealistic sounding, but, <laughs> but I, I'm very idealistic. So I'll just put that out there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I kind of want to go, I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent for a second, but it's going to come back around. Yes. Um, so you might not know this, but I'm kind of on like a spiritual awakening right now. I used to be Southern Baptist. I, kind of deconstructed that religion. And I was in a very long season of just like, I don't want to believe in a higher power. I don't want to believe in a higher power. I want to believe in logic and reason and what I can control and what is real and like what is like here and now. And that I think I was necessary part of my journey. But in the last several weeks, <laughs> we're very fresh here. The last several weeks, I've been in this the sensation of like, I kind of want to believe in God again. Like I kind of want to believe that there's a benevolent being or a benevolent essence that is looking out for everyone and looking out for me and that I, I'm not carrying it all alone. Mm-hmm. And I think like when I hear you say, um, which I want to touch on, like this kind of evolution started with your welcoming prayer meditation. That's the first thing that me doing something that had prayer in the title. Um, it's been years and (laughs) doing that. First of all, if you are a type seven or if you struggle with your emotions at all, if you're, you know, three, um, a lot of us struggle with emotion. If you struggle with emotion, um, insight timer, Nian has a meditation there called welcoming prayer. It is epic. Um, so starting there, and then I read this book called lit, which talks about the 12 step program, which talks about the higher power and having to accept a higher power. And then I read all about love by bell hooks, where she talks all about, it's kind of this version of religion or this version of a higher power that is all encompassing and all about love. And it's just kind of like all of a sudden serendipity feels possible again. And like the idea that there is something happening for me and that things will work out. And so when you talked about, oh, I don't have to do it for the money. I can do it because I feel called to it. I think that if you had said that to me three weeks ago, I would have been like, you can't do that. (laughs) You have to make your money. But it's like so fascinating to be three weeks later and to be able to say, oh, I believe too that there is, you'll be provided for, like things will be okay. Wow. Amazing. (laughs) I want to laugh and say, you know, it's a little cheesy, but some people would say, well, Sarah Jane, that's divine timing. (laughs) This is divine timing, but I don't want to like belittle the the significance of that. You know, that's Mm -hmm. powerful. And, And just again, to your credit, your openness, like there's something about like, people when we do our when we seriously do the Enneagram work that there is like oh yeah I believe that I used Mm -hmm. to believe this and now I don't Mm -hmm. you know and but that that switch to me the capacity to keep our minds and our hearts 
open is profound. And I you know now I want to interview you. I'm like, <laughs> okay, so tell me how you even got to that point. And like, we didn't do another one here. <laughs> I'm so I'm so curious because for me this is everything. Because okay, okay mm. back to me real quickly to bring, bring perfect, back. yeah. For, no. But just that, I mean, it took like a certain degree of. Like, again, the hardness of my life and somehow, like, I was trying so hard and and I was being so smart and yet I couldn't be happy. And it was really the moment of um, someone suggesting, like, what about God? What about your higher, like, higher power? And it was so cute. I remember him saying, like, well, if you don't have one, you could use mine. <laughs> you know? Like, oh, well, when I was a little kid, I kind of believed in something. And so I started write like uh, someone suggested I write on a piece of paper God is and then mm-hmm. just fill it in and and I realized mm-hmm. many of us come to realize that at first we have this notion if we believe in God at all that it's like God is all the, the worst qualities of your mm-hmm. primary caregivers which is like conditional love and mm-hmm. punitive and and all that it was like I don't even want to believe in God anyway that's the God of you know my understanding but like I got to redefine my relationship to God quote the universe. Like I don't really mm-hmm. care what word people use. To me, it's about sort of believing in something beyond your present consciousness, if you will. Mm-hmm. Because I believe that God is God is transcendent and imminent. It's bigger than me, but it is. It's like also within me. You know, like the very substance of my being. But but to 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 go back to you that usually it does take some sort of like moment of reckoning, right. Of where it's like the best of what I've tried doesn't quite work to give me, whether it's like the inner peace or the, you know, maybe I'm guessing for you a sense of enoughness because you, you clearly from an external point of view have a phenomenal body of work that you do in a way you show up, you know, and, but I can imagine that's, it's also a lot of work. And mm-hmm. that question of like how much hustle is necessary from the universe, you know, like mm-hmm. you know, versus like how much can how can can I rest, yeah. you know, and and what can I rest on? What can I rest in? And mm-hmm. if I'm not just resting on my own hard work, what else is there? Can I trust in that goodness that underlies mm-hmm. things? And yeah, and I think your journey is very authentic in that one of the things that because maybe because I didn't always believe, like I hold a lot of space, even in my spiritual groups for, for questioning, for not believing. I mean, I've had people who are now like some of my primary supporters, you know, and community members who are like, opinion, by the way, I hate the word God, and I don't even believe in it, you know, but I'm like, like, like they just launch into my groups like that. I'm like, okay, <laughs> okay. But like, it's okay with you that I do. <laughs> I'm <Yeah>. good, <laughs> you know? But you've got, like, to have an authentic spirituality, you have mm-hmm. to be able to question it and find what's really true for you, mm-hmm. right? So I really honor that journey. Yeah. yeah. And I love what you said about, like, God is big. And, like, I think when I, so kind of the final conversation I had with the God of my childhood was like, if I believe that you're all knowing, if I believe that you are all being and all loving, then like you get it, right? Like you understand that I need some time to explore and to figure out what I really believe. And if this is actually harmful or helpful and um, that you'll be here when I'm ready to come back and that you'll still love me because like, if you are the God I want to worship, like if you are the God I believe in, then like you're smarter than me. You're more loving than me. You're more accepting than me. 
And so the limitations that I'm putting on like what I think God is, like can't be true, you know? So like the ability to be explorative, I have to believe that God gets that and is smart enough to be like, (laughs) of course you're going to have questions. Right, right. And even that, and I don't know, you know, how deeply you want to go into that, but at some level, if you start from a more traditional Christian background, there's a personification in there already Mm -hmm. happening, right? Which is it like a personified God? You know, I tend to think of God, but it's hard to talk about, right? No, like, Mm -hmm. you know, but like almost like as like just the very essence of life itself and that essence being love, Mm -hmm. you know? And so love in which, you know, God in which we live and move and have our being, right? Love Mm -hmm. in which we live and move and have our being. And it's like, we can get pissed off and and cross our arms, you know, whatever, but we can't leave it. Like, because we're made of it. You know, it's like that. It's sort of like, so Mm -hmm. I can turn away. I can can close my eyes, but that doesn't mean like that light isn't here just because it looks dark to me, you know? And then as soon as I open my eyes, it's, it's here, not because it returned, but because it never left. Mm. Yeah. So just kind of like, yeah, ways in different ways. And, you know, someone said once and Gary Bernard, I think anything, everything, but God is a metaphor, you know? And so all of these are just ways we try to analogize or describe something that is ineffable you know, like that Mm. is beyond description. Right. But I think that these descriptions help us to approach, you know, like to kind of have a relationship with it, but yeah. So amazing. Um, I'm so excited for your journey. Thank you. Thanks for um, going there with me into my own kind of existential awakening. Surprised we went there. Um, (laughs) That wasn't the plan, but, um, <laughs> is there anything more you'd like to share? Did you? <laughs> I would love to hear it. <laughs> so, yeah. Today's podcast is brought to you by KiwiCo. Fall is just around the corner. So it's a great time to get started on a new home decor project, practice self-care through crafting or prepare DIY gifts for the holidays. You can discover your inner maker and boost your creative confidence with Maker Crate. With a Maker Crate subscription from KiwiCo, you'll get new art and design projects each month, along with high quality tools and materials conveniently delivered to your door. I have been looking for this for so long. This year on my birthday, I literally asked my husband, can you find me like some sort of a hobby crate? I just want to learn a lot of new skills and things that I can do and Maker Crate is exactly what I was looking for and it's kind of funny because we've been longtime KiwiCo customers. Our kiddo loves KiwiCo. This month we built a robot together that walks like we made that because KiwiCo gives you such clear and defined instructions and everything that you need. And I was able to learn how to embroider from the Maker Crate. I was able to embroider an apron. I even made a pin to go on my husband's jean jacket. I've never embroidered a day in my life, but all of a sudden 
I am a professional. MakerCrate is designed to help teens and adults discover new art and design tools and gain the creative confidence to turn their artistic visions into design realities. From macrame hangers to terrazzo trays, take pride in making something fun and functional. Each crate opens the door for makers to continue creating all by themselves long after they've completed the projects in each crate. Plus, they'll get a look at the real-world applications and the history behind each art form or design technique. Maker Crate delivers high-quality materials, tools, and inspiration to encourage lifelong art and design skills. I was honestly shocked by everything they included in this box, like everything I could possibly need to do embroidery for this project, but also for tons of projects to move forward with. It wasn't just like they gave me enough to do one thing, I was able to do even more. Each crate features a new project across themes like paper marbling, metal sculpture, dip dye painting, macrame, loom knitting, hand lettering, embroidery, and more. Get inspired to create amazing projects that explore art and design. Everything is shipped right to your door, and with no commitment, you can pause or cancel any time. So turn your artistic visions into reality with MakerCrate from KiwiCo. You can get 50% off your first month plus free shipping with code egram at kiwico.com. Y'all, that is 50% off your first month at kiwico.com with the promo code egram. Thank you so much, KiwiCo, for supporting the podcast. Okay, so you tell me your boundary on this. How comfortable are you talking about like your kind of existential awakening right now? Like with Enneagram with type stuff? Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I'm open. I'm okay. completely open. I don't know what I'll say about yeah. it. <laughs> oh, shoot. Okay. <laughs> okay, let's um, go. Well, the, the, just to be like, I think like just to open the space, like the conversation I had last week was with Ramona, who's also an Enneagram coach, who's also kind of going through this. I've talked about my own questioning. So like you are in good company. Um, and I'm just curious, like what spurred kind of your questioning and are you comfortable talking about like what type you're also considering and yes. what's going on there? Oh, okay. So, so those of you who are already my students who are like, oh, you know, just, um, I'm still, you know, I'm still uh, considering this, but I'm at the level where I wouldn't even really openly talk about it unless I was really leaning this way. So the type I'm considering is the sexual three. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I am currently identified with the sexual one. When I first learned the Enneagram, nobody was talking about instinctual variants or subtypes. And so, um, so like in what little they did describe about it, I remember reading the sexual one. I'm like, the description looks completely like me, you know, meaning I'm perfectionistic. Right. And I am. So I was, I mean, I would, it would be excruciating, even like little, little errors. So I still have a lot of that. I'm nitpicky, like the worst of me, right? Like, mm -hmm. like there's been recovery over these years, you know? And, um, and so the, again, that, that negative self-concept and earlier on, I think that the descriptions of threes were even less thorough than the description of ones mm -hmm. and that it was focused on the stereotype of a probably less healthy three. That is like America, right? The stereotype of that person who always wants center stage that, that doesn't seem to care about other people is just mm. highly 
competitive. And I never identified with that. And in mm-hmm. fact, part of the journey, they say that if you're still looking for your type, listen to uh, panels. And even then I listened to panels and I had more identification over the years with ones and threes would sit on panels. And I'd be like, I don't know. Like I, I actually can stop, you know, like I, I, I'm not as workaholic in that way. And then I learned only later that self-preservation threes are the most workaholic, you know, sexual threes, maybe not, not as much. Right. And so there are little pieces like that, that I'm starting to piece. Okay. So to go back to the beginning, on a God, I can't believe I'm telling everyone in the world. So the ready test, when I first took the test, I actually scored highest in three and second in one. But then I read both descriptions and three didn't even resonate at that time. And I'm like, that's not me. And then I read the one and that's when I cried. So again, like, like that's, I don't use online tests as like definitive, but there's, mm-hmm. there's some information that could be had there. And so, so earlier on, I had that little nudging, right? And then over the years, as I was studying sort of on my own, I would go back. I mean, there's no one sort of in my life to tell me, no, you better look at three instead. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I would routinely open up the book over the years and go, hmm, could I be a three? Because, you know, I mean, I do achieve well in the world. I get stuff done. I, I mean, I'm efficient. Uh, and effective, but these all seem to be one-ish qualities as well. Mm-hmm. And then every time, again, the books I read, the descriptions didn't really match. And um, and so even now, when I read even some of the best descriptions, like I know that you've worked with Beatrice Chestnut and her mm-hmm. book, The Enneagram, probably has one of the best expositions for those who are questioning, you know, around subtype of all the subtypes. Even then, I read it and I'm like, maybe, uh, but the sexual one with the way that um, basically the sexual one is described as someone who is not as perfectionistic, but likes to perfect others. I'm like, this is the story of my life. (laughs) I'm like, even now in ministry, like I could like just help you perfect yourself. (laughs) I know exactly what you need to do. (laughs) Like I so resonated with that. And, And yeah, and some of that, like I had a strong inner critic. So all these things felt really true for me. And then they even said that there was a back door and my God, I'm just opening up everything right here. Yeah. A part of why I hit bottom in life is, is I had major issues with relationship and sexuality in, um, mm-hmm. in my earlier years. And so I hit bottom and went to a 12 program related to relationships and sexuality. And, and so sexual ones, they talk about that as like that sort of backdoor. You have to be so good on the surface. Like nobody in my life would possibly know that I have any issues with anything. I'm like the model student, you know, I'm the model employee and all that. So all of that fit um, behaviorally. And it really did fit in the sense of like my inner critic, but nagging me over the years was um, and, you know, people who would meet me would constantly think I was, I was a three, even teachers, you know, and oh, wow. I have to consider this. I have to be open to this. And so I reread the stuff. And so this is not a new journey. I mean, so really from the very beginning, three was planted in there. And I was just like, I don't resonate with anything. But then I almost, the weird thing is more so now I've become more adept. like people just, so the people closest to me, closest to me have this theory that, I mean, they believe that Mm -hmm. I've just grown. And so I'm more flexible Mm -hmm. and I'm more fluid. I'm more accessible because they apparently, they don't really want to say, but they saw me when I was more tight, like, (laughs) and 
and rigid. And so they're very convinced that I'm just becoming healthier. And I'm looking at the three going, I am adaptable, you know, and I do like, it's really, really subtle. But what if, you know, I mean, what if I have a strong one influence in my early childhood, you know, such that I really like the three's deepest deception, right, is not deceiving others. It's Mm -hmm. self-deception. It's it's to where you really believe your own Mm self-concept. And I'm like, my God, what if I told myself early on, you cannot be anything other than a good person. Mm. And what if I held on to that so well that even alone with myself, I have this, like, I have to affirm that concept. As a one, I thought of it just as my ideal. So you see how, like, it's so subtle and tricky. Is it an ideal that I'm striving for? Or is it a self-concept and one that I know how to manage how I even perceive myself to affirm that? And I definitely have, more than most ones I know, a capacity to be aware of how I'm perceived by others. Mm-hmm. And, and what if what my inner work did for me was, in a weird way, that oneness came from the outside? <laughs> and that I'm actually, before I, I mean, this is so humbling, because it's like, oh, I only just took the top layer of oneness off, and now I have the three layer to deal with. <laughs> You know, and that, like oh, now I'm finally owning my ambition <laughs> and my de- deception, and now I ha- now I have to work that, you know, and and so that's where I am right now. But mm. the good news is that I really ha- I I'm just kinder to myself than I've ever been in my life, and I'm like, okay, I mean, it doesn't the the goal really isn't your enneagram type, right? It's the right. type. As as our friend Drew Moser has said, the type is trailhead mm-hmm. to your selfhood, and that I feel like you know I I didn't used to even like myself, much less love myself. Mm-hmm. And you know I'm like I actually like I I love myself now. Mm-hmm. I treat myself well when I'm tired. You know, like if my schedule looks full and I see a client that I know I can move. I look at it. I'm like, I'm tired. I move the client. Like I, like I, I don't push myself. Yes. You know, I like trust the flow of life. And, and so, so whether or not like, so here's my strategy right now, I try to work both three and oneness at the same time. So I'm like, you know, I'm like, well, both of them tend to overdo. And so the let the more being rather than doing is going to support me no matter what. And then I'm just delving into what's true for you. I used to think that the question was what's being an in integrity. You see how the one mm-hmm. one integrity, but that doesn't look that different from the threes seeking for authenticity. Yeah. And that's what's confused me. And so I'm still living in that, but going ultimately, if I just let myself be aware of what where I'm really acting from. And in a moment, if I see that I am curating image or I am adjusting and that this is not going to feed me and this is to establish worth outside, if I catch that, whether I'm a one or a three, Mm -hmm. then I can choose differently. You know, if I catch myself thinking negatively and critically, which my boyfriend still thinks I'm a one, <laughs> apparently because of that, he's like, he's like, you're a one. He's like, he's like, you don't cut corners. And, you know, it's like they don't really outright want to say because you're so critical yet, you know, but, they, but they're like, I think you're a one, you know, so, so that's kind of how I'm working it. But it, it was, it was this gradual, it's so subtle the way mm-hmm. type 
work. And especially the threeness of self-deception. I'm like, 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 can I, can I find that really quick thought I have that like adjusts, like, am I adjusting before I even know it, mm-hmm. you know, and how subtly, and is that why I can adjust to every student in my class? And, mm-hmm. and why is it that most ones I know can't like just really scrutinizing that. But again, like scrupulously, rigorously, but compassionately looking at um, what's showing up here and how does that keep me from being, I mean, from being fulfilled. Mm -hmm. Because if I'm living for others and for others' approval, you know, or if I'm even, or if I'm living to a standard, I'm not at peace with myself. And that's really the goal, right? Like for Mm -hmm. me, like the goal of, claiming that wholeness. So that was a lot at once. Oh no, it's so good. I, I, you know, I will say like the number that I'll just kind of be, my thoughts are very unorganized. We'll see how this comes out. Mm -hmm. So first thought is often I read descriptions of type five and I think that's me. Mm. but I don't present at all like a type five. Like I know that like in behavior and in body language, like like not much like a type five. I do have significant concerns about expending energy, you know, it's, but that relationship to the five and seven is so intertwined for me. Mm. And it's been kind of like this quiet thing that I feel like I'm not supposed to talk about, you know, and I, I do anyway, because I don't know how not to, but all of that to say, I've kind of started thinking about it almost like I have all the types in me, and at some, at different points, they want attention and like need a little love and a little bit of work. And like, it's almost like I can, when I'm like thinking about you and I'm thinking about your looking at the Enneagram symbol, it's almost like I can see three like blinking, you know, like, Hey, look at me for a little bit. Like, let's play together and like, let's see what's going on here. And I think sometimes we the Enneagram language can be so rigid that we limit our ability to grow within the Enneagram because we're afraid of mistyping or misunderstanding it or doing it wrong. When, if there's something in three for you right now, there's something in three for you right now. And like, for me, like if there's something in five for me, there's something in five for me and we get to explore that. And that's like, and and I I even like, even as I'm talking, I can like hear my seven. I'm like, this is an exciting adventure. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and whether it's one or three, I'm like, but we need to commit to something. <laughs> I was like, no, I mean, not exactly, but I, I so appreciate you saying that because I think, well, it's part, it's like, it's like the exploration of spirituality we just talked mm-hmm. about. Like you have to be free to try on different things, right? To experiment with different things. I think there's a balance there. You know, I think the wariness for people when we're like, we're all types, you know, is like, well, then you- What are you actually working on? Right. As long as you're working on something. (laughs) Like, Like that's where, yes, exactly. So my point is like, for those listening, if you're like not wanting to land on the type so that you're like, you're not working any path, just instead of waiting to figure it out, it's almost like experientially try on the path, try on, like, what does it feel like if, if you try on a path and it's super easy for you to work that journey, it may not be your number, but that, but that, and then yes, if there are other points and what you're speaking to is something that's really alive for me right now. And I mean, it's the origins of the Enneagram, which is now popular as a personality typing tool, but really is a process 
Enneagram, right? Not a personality Enneagram. And that in the map that the Enneagram is, we're not talking in terms of types. Like it's not like that type, it's the point on the map. So like mm-hmm. point five would be, you know, like what can we explore about point five for you in this moment, right? And the idea that we want, like the part of the journey is becoming more fluid and flexible and skillful in what aspects of our wholeness, you know, embodied by the circle of the Enneagram that we're able to express in this moment that if we were just limited to our type we couldn't, you know, like a two being able to ex- express their needs or assertiveness or their own creativity. Like that's touching on points like eight and four on the Enneagram, right? That like, that if you're stuck in your number because you haven't done your, you know, your spiritually based like Enneagram mm-hmm. work, Enneagram work, then that's where the problem lies, right? It's the stuckness. And, and so the liberation is about recognizing if I don't own where I am, it's almost like I can't locate it myself. Yeah. Myself, right. Like just kind of do some work around that. Yeah. It almost reminds me of like when I, I, so I studied photojournalism in college and it used to frustrate me so much because my teacher would say, you need to learn the rules before you can break them. So it's Mm. like, you have to know the rule of thirds, which is, you know, essentially you don't ever center your subject and you put them kind of coming into the frame and you have to learn this in order for you to take a a picture where the, the subject is centered and it be done well. And I wanted to skip that step, right? Like I wanted to go straight to like free reign. I get to shoot however I want. This is my vision. But learning the rules, really limiting myself initially and saying, here's what I have to do in order to take a good photograph. Then when I finally did like expand my definition of what a good photograph was, I was able to take great photographs. And it's kind of feeling like that with the Enneagram. It's like we limit ourselves so that we can actually get the benefits of the work and we can really go deep, go much deeper than we think we're able to go. And then maybe there comes a time where it's like we get more growth through expansion, through expanding our definition of what what it looks like to be the stumber or to work with the Enneagram at all. Yes. Freedom, really, is what you're yeah. talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I mean, it's similar to like I used to um, do dance, like salsa dancing. And it's sort of like, well, you have to learn the steps first. But once you learn it, there's so much freedom, right, like within it. But if you don't know the steps, you don't dance freely, you just fall down because you're stepping over mm-hmm. your feet, right? You know, like there's something about like, like the, the idea how initial, I mean, you could call it limitation, you could call it grounding, you can call it landing on something, committing to something, right? You know, mm-hmm. that there's something about how that opens a pathway. Um, I, I have a seven actually that I work with that where he was like blown away by this analogy. I was like, hey, think of it as this commitment in this like relationship is like, you know how in amusement parks you have like you have to go to that ticket booth and there's like a long sort of like tunnel maybe you might go through and like the tunnel feels like you're narrowing your life but if you didn't go through that pathway you wouldn't ever see that amusement park mm-hmm. like there's a whole world that you wouldn't have seen had you not gone into that tunnel that felt confining right mm-hmm. there's something like that that's that feels similar to me and the people i work with of like committing to something and that's not just committing to a type at least for now right trying it mm-hmm. on for real but committing to a path like it doesn't matter to me like which spiritual path or mm-hmm. which like which um even psychological like like 
like try on a discipline that helps you to become mm-hmm. aware, like a mindfulness, you know, that kind of thing. And, and that there's some, there's a gift in the end that isn't available if you didn't go into that tunnel. Oh, yes. Yeah. I'm going to close this there because if I'm not careful, Nian, I will keep you here forever. <laughs> um, and I want us to do rapid fire questions because they're my favorite part. Oh, okay. Okay. Is there anything lingering for you that you feel like you really want to make sure you get to say before we move into rapid fire? Um, no, I'm good. (laughs) Um, okay. So our rapid fire questions, you just kind of answer the first thing that comes to your mind. There's no wrong way. Okay. Um, the first book that comes to mind. Oh, uh, Trinity and the law of three, Cynthia Brichot. Mm, A favorite song. Hero. (laughs) A something you wish people knew about you. Uh, I am obsessed with trees. Like I'm a tree lover, hugger, climber. Um, I love that. Your dream day, what are you doing? Oh, I immediately thought about my partner Colby and just Mm. really spending time together. That's that simple. I'm really simple. And yeah. Your final meal, what are you eating? Oh, salmon. Yum. What's on it? Oh, um, lemon and, oh my God, the pressure. <laughs> um, <just> a <laughs> drop of like aioli. <laughs> yeah, like garlic butter or like um, garlic aioli. Now I'm going all seven. I was like, I don't want to be, I, I want options. <laughs> I was like, can my favorite meal be like a buffet? <laughs> oh, for sure. You know. Oh, then my favorite meal is brunch in general. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the brunches that have like omelets and salmon and all the yes. good stuff. Like brunch is my favorite meal. I just want <laughs> someone to cut my fruit up for me and put it on display with some croissants and like uh-huh. let me pick and choose from it. Oof. Nice. Um, food for thought. Something that people can leave today just keeping in mind. Oh, Wow. Well, um, the, the, the thing that's really been on my mind and heart is there's something about claiming yourself in your wholeness that I often teach it regarding the circle of the Enneagram, right? There's something that where I think we all have the journey into that, like claiming and loving ourselves. But what I'm starting to notice is, oh, I had this revelation recently that maybe that circle is also an, a zero mm-hmm. and that there's a way in which it also Um, symbolizes no self. And like, if you think about your most favorite moments where like, you're so happy you're in flow, whether it's like playing tennis, you know, making love, whatever it is, it's like, it's, it's not self-abandonment in the negative way, but it's like, when we continue to move on the journey, I think there's hope that it's almost like a self-forgetting in a beautiful way. Mm -hmm. We're just there receiving and not self-consciously receiving Mm -hmm. life. You know, that's kind of my hope for all of us. Yeah. So good. And so I know, well, we need to know where to connect with you online, but also I know you have some cohorts starting up this month. So can you tell us a little bit about the cohorts and then also where to find you to learn more? Yes. So uh, contemplative practices and the Enneagram groups are like, I don't know, between 10 and 20 people each. We have four of them involving Enneagram. Three of them are opening to new people uh, the week of September 27th. This is kind of what Evolving Enneagram became, quote, 
you know, famous in the Enneagram world for. This is what I was invited to present at the global conferences about because these groups, I mean, if you want to practice becoming unbusy, you know, these groups are not about teaching the Enneagram. You should already know your type. They're about doing the meditation practice and then learning how to engage sacred listening and presencing yourself and one another. So if that calls to you, um, just find us at evolvingenneagram.com. And I'm also, of course, on Instagram at evolvingenneagram as well. Oh, and that ins insight meditation um is also Evolving Enneagram. That's the name of the account. And that's where you can find free meditations like that welcoming prayer, quote, meditation. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and you're one of the only people that I follow on Instagram who also does Enneagram on Instagram. I try, I don't follow a ton on purpose, but yours are so fulfilling to me and like so enriching. So um, definitely y'all should go check that out. That means a lot. Thank you yeah. so much. Same. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, you so much for being here. <laughs> yeah. Take good care. I want to keep talking to you though. <laughs> Let's see you soon. Okay. Yeah. See you. Bye. Bye. <laughs>